0: Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday Sermon Series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. As I reflected upon this Mother's Day, I began to think about what motherly characteristics are important to me. How, mom, how my mom has been very important to me, of what traits of my mom that I long for that I miss the most. And that kind of led me into what memories, I think some of you guys may say, what core memories do I cling on to when I think of the word mom? And I thought of two distinct memories I don't know how, I don't know why these two, but these two really stood out to me. And the first one has to do with that moms are often the greatest source of security and comfort for us. Moms are usually often the most, the greatest source of security and comfort for us. And then I was brought to my mind that the first time that I ever experienced wailing, wailing is not just crying, crying uncontrollably, crying loudly. It's one of those like you're not just sniffling, you're not, you're not just feeling sadness, but it's one of those ugly cries. And at least in my young life, my memory of wailing was when I was seven years old. I came home from school one day and found a note on the coffee table that left, that my mom had left. It read, you know, I am visiting grandma and grandpa in Seoul. I'll be away, and I'll be gone for two nights. There's soup in the pot enough for the next few days. Take care. I'll be back soon. As a little boy, I held that note in my hand. I dropped to the floor. I began to cry out as if the world had just collapsed, crying out, Mom, Oma, where are you? And the philosophical questioning my day, why did you leave me? <laughs> and I just remember, as I recall that memory of mine, I, 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 I sense just a heartbreak. I, I remember literally crying. My world had collapsed. I, you know, I was one of those Latsky kids, right? And I came home, and mom was gone. And the fact that I wasn't going to have her for the next two and a half days, eating the same pot of soup, that just broke my heart. And I, of course, it wasn't a surprise. Mom had already prepped me that she would be gone. It did not matter to me. At that moment, my world just collapsed. I think it's so telling of that our dependence on our mom is so great because of the love and security they provide for us be it you're seven years old, 17 years, 27, 37, or even 47, that we have this longing of our moms because how comforting, how uh, secure they can be for us. And then again, when we think about moms, moms are often the greatest supporters of us. And they support us so greatly, and their support of us and their validation, their encouragement for us is often unreasonable, often irrational. What they think of us is not necessarily true. Did you guys know growing up that I I had always heard that I'm the most handsome? That's messed up. I'm the smartest. Whoa. Whoa. Honey, we're going to talk. I'm the most talented. And that there wasn't a thing that I cannot do if I were to choose, pursue anything. I literally, I kid you not, I grew up hearing that. It didn't matter what kind of grades I, got, I brought home. It didn't matter what I placed in my uh, uh, sporting event away at school. It did not matter if I, whatever I looked like, it, it did not matter. To my mom, I remember thinking, man, I'm the greatest person in the world. And this kind of irrational behavior of my mom towards me and an affirmation of me led me to actually believe all the way through my 10th grade in high school that I thought I was like Ivy League bound. Might, you guys know this story because I, I, I think I told you guys this before. I had my first academic uh, counseling meeting with my advisor at school. Say, hey, so we're talking about, hey, man, what, what, hey, you're in 10th grade. You're about to take the PSATs. So what plans do you have for college? And I told my counselor, Mr. Dickerson, I said, well, I think I'm going to go to Harvard. And he just, kids, you know, he just, he just stared at me. He didn't say anything. He didn't berate me. He just, like, stared. At, he just looked at me. He's like, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea your, what your grace can do? You know, part of that was because, like, my mom. I blame my mom because she said, I grew up thinking, you're the best. You're the smartest kid in the world. So obviously, all the way up to 16 until I met met with my counselor, like, man, this is the reality of the thing. And and you know what? Like, do we not like when we think of our parents, particularly our moms? Do we not think of that? Do do they not think of you as the greatest person? I mean, it's crazy what our moms would do when they defend us, when they stand for us. It does not matter. I remember, like, in fourth grade, I came home, and I, and I, I, I was really convicted. This is, I like think, one of the first memories of me lying to my mom. I came home. I said, Mom, I think they're, like, the teacher is doing a secret study session with some people, and I wasn't invited. And that's all I said. I don't know why I said it. And then that prompted my mom to call the school. And the whole time, I was like, so, so, oh, my gosh. <laughs> And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, my mom is crazy. And then I got married, and I, my son was like two or three, and we were on our way to Party City to pick up some balloons. And we were crossing the street, and then this car, the driver was just kind of going too, too fast. And my, my wife saw and they, like, yanked at my kid because, you know, the driver was going so fast. She turned around, and I think that may have been the, the first time. Like, I've heard her, like, curse out loud, and she wants to, like, throw it down and then, you know, just go at it. (laughs) It's crazy. I mean, if you guys think about it, is is there a thing that a mother wouldn't do for their beloved children? And their love and their care for them is, like, it doesn't really make sense, but there's, like, there's no limit to what they think of their children. You know, there's a Korean proverb which I heard growing up. Even the porcupines think their babies are soft and furry. I mean, it, it's affirming of like, I mean, you got know, porcupines, right? So spiky, dangerous. Like no one wants to go near them, touch them. But their moms, if their kids, like so soft and cuddly. That's what they think. It, it, I think it's so telling of our mom. It, it, it's it's this whole sense of like, my kid is the best. My kid can do no wrong. Imagine the confidence and the self-assurance that we all have and how much of that had been forged by our mothers. On the contrary, what would happen if this were to be lacking in us? What if we were to lack such affirmation? How would our lives be any different not having the assurance of being secured and being irrationally supported? What if you hadn't felt that way in a long, long time? What if you you hadn't felt that ever in your life? Be it the lack of the physical presence or the lack of such intimate relationship, how would your life be different now? What challenges and what pains could you possibly be carrying in your life? Perhaps you have had it Maybe perhaps you are able to connect with what I just described to you, maybe in the distant past in your life, at one point in your life, but you don't feel that, you don't feel the same way anymore. Maybe the relationship that you have with your mom is now factored and, and, and no longer the same. And I believe there is this longing in all of our hearts. There's this void that we can't quite fill, that is uniquely designed to be filled only by our mothers. Unfortunately, many of us encounter this precise experience quite often in our lives. Something is missing. And just like, um, you know, we we carry this, what we call, orphan spirit. Orphan is, is a child who is without a mom or dad, whose parents have died, someone who is without the love and the care of the parents. And I think it's true that we carry this spirit. The sentiment of like, man, I'm uncared for. I'm forgotten. I'm not well supported. And I'm abandoned. I'm not really intimately connected with this source of irrational love and affirmation. This is one of the reasons why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so precious and so powerful. One of the most more attractive things about the gospel is that God comes to those who may feel the pain of carrying such orphan spirit, living their lives in rejection, dejection, and uncared for, and despondency. Jesus also shared that same responsibility, commissioned that to us. Now, as I have demonstrated to you, as I live in my stead, you care for the orphans and the widows. And God allows that to happen so that we can show his heart towards those who are without physical parents. And the Bible powerfully depicts God as the one that comes to us. You know, we read earlier just a few minutes ago, it says in Psalm 68, A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. In describing God's mercy and love, the psalmist makes specific references to God being a father to the fatherless. And it says, God is also the judge for the widows. What does the psalmist mean? Imagine this, father to the fatherless. He's talking about the orphans here. He's talking about one who has lived without the care and the um, protection of a father, who has been abandoned who have been disconnected from community, who have been uh, without any protection, any connection to human relationships. And he also says, God is a righteous judge. God is a judge for the widows. You have to understand the significance of the description of the word widow. In the ancient Old Testament times, the widows were one of the most marginalized, the weakest people in all of society oftentimes they do not, they would not have the ability to work. They would not have the right to speak on behalf of the families that she belongs to. And the psalmist is saying, particularly for those that who do not have the voices for themselves, particularly for those that feel the greatest pain and anxiety, this anguish, but those guys are without their voices The psalmist says, God comes to us as the judge. I think indeed the righteous judge at that. And he becomes the voice for those that cannot speak for themselves. God comes to us as a father to the fatherless. God says, I am going to now intimately care for you. You don't have to go throughout life all by yourself. You don't have to wonder whether you belong to somebody or anywhere. In the last description in verse 6, it says, God makes a home for the lonely. God would choose to dwell with the lonely, those who are without a family, those who are without any friends or companions. God would choose to dwell among the broken. And this is precisely why what what Jesus did when he came to save the world, right? Leading up to the moment of crucifixion, dying for the sins of the world, what did Jesus do? He spent 30 plus years living among the people. What kind of people did he spend most time with? What kind of people, what kind of uh, people in the society? Well, I mean, he, he spent his greatest resources hanging out with and ministering to those that were greatly marginalized. He hung out with the widows, the tax collectors, those that are helpless, those that were friendless. Jesus came to them. Jesus ministered to those that carry this particular orphaned spirit. And you know that I'm not just talking about physically. I'm not just talking about those who are without their physical parents but, but, but because even those with physical parents, you can experience this as well spiritually. This orphan spirit constantly wrestling with and asking the questions. Check this out. Where do I belong? Where is my community? Am I loved? Am I cared for? Is anyone on my side? So even as you and me right now, as we're listening to this sermon... If you have ever asked these questions along the course of your life, then you and I have also experienced the orphaned spirit. It has less to do with what kind of families that we belong to. It has less to do with what kind of relationships that we are introduced to. Even with these relationships, we can carry on the spirit of the orphan. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 14, I'm going to read that passage for you. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and, we, uh, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus, in just days before being crucified, and the disciples were panicking. They were freaking out. They were a hot mess because their rabbi who spent their their, their three years with was about to go die. And Jesus, in the heat of the moment, had to assure his disciples. He was telling them, hey, I'm going to leave. I have to go finish my assignment, which is the cross. But as I leave in my stead, I'm sending you somebody. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. In the literal translation, the Holy Spirit, he means, Perikletos, he means the one who comes alongside of you. One who is right next to you. And he reminds them that even though that I'm being gone physically, you will have the Holy Spirit with you Always. And I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm not leaving you for. I'm not leaving you as abandoned. I'm not leaving you to do life all by yourself. And this was really important because Jesus said, I came precisely for those that can't take care of themselves. I came precisely for those that carry this orphaned spirit. Today... I want to share with you some of the signs that you may be carrying this orphaned spirit. And I want to remind you that, again, as I alluded to earlier, this has less to do just your physical relationships, even with existing relationships, that we can somehow be carrying the orphaned spirit. First, I want to tell you this. Orphan spirit lives in religious people. Say that with me. Orphan spirit lives in religious people. I'm not talking about orthodoxy. I'm not talking about just styles and traditions here. I'm not talking about people of certain traditions who wear suits and ties to church. I'm not talking about like uh, religious, oh, you sing hymns only. They don't allow, they don't allow instruments. They don't, you know, I'm not talking about worship styles. Religion is what is left when the relationship with God is non-existent. Religion is what is left when the relationship with God is non-observed. Religions can happen among charismatics, the Baptists, um, Presbyterians, the Catholics, what else, who, do, who else do we have? Armenians, Calvinists. The spirit of religion can be lived on among many people. You see, you have to understand, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a revelation. Matthew chapter 16, remember the private dialogue with, God, uh, with Jesus and the disciples? The disciples came to Jesus saying, hey, you know, a lot of people are saying that you're Elijah. A lot of people, some people are saying you're, you know, this prophet, that prophet. So Jesus in turn asks the disciples, well, but who do you say that I am? Remember that dialogue? Who do you say that I am? Peter and Simon Peter speaks up. Well, you are the son of God. What did Jesus say in response to Peter's response? That you are the son of God. Jesus didn't say, Good job, Peter, my number one student, my A plus student, good job. I taught you well. I'm glad you finally said you understood these principles. What did Jesus say? Jesus said instead, Well, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It was my Father in heaven who, have alo- who has allowed you to grasp this truth. You cannot be a Christian without revelation. Our faith does not lie on just set of principles or doctrines. Our faith begins with information. God, I want to remind you, but faith is not information. Faith is revelation. Just because you know, just because you have more knowledge of who God is, you can know about God and still not know God. All throughout scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, it affirms, it resoundingly proclaims that faith is a revelation. Faith is described as intimate knowledge. Go ahead and read the epistle of John in, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 3. And, and John is writing to the people, the Christians at that time And he's fumbling through the words. What I have have heard, what I have seen with my eyes. And he keeps repeating himself three times. What I have seen, what I have heard with my ears. This I proclaim to you. The revelation of the son Jesus Christ. Christ, That your joy may be complete. It's not about the heady knowledge. It's about what we can experience as God himself reveals to us. Revelation gives you an identity. Revelation makes you a son. Revelation of Jesus Christ makes you a daughter in him. Religion deprives you of such identity. Religion makes your faith about earning, that you need to prove yourself, that you need to be good enough, you need to be diligent enough, you need to be holy enough. What does that even mean? You need to sound holy. (laughs) Religion leads you farther and farther away from the fact that Jesus came precisely because human effort was not enough. And there was no way in the span of eternity that humanity would close the gap between the holiness of God and the depravity of man. And for that reason, Apostle Paul says, there is nothing, there is no one that is righteous. There is none who is righteous in the eyes of God. That all man has fallen in the glory, short sure fallen of the glory of God. Revelation says salvation is a great gift from God. Religion says, well, deem yourself worthy over and over again. Strive to no end. Earn God's love. Earn people's love. Do more. Be better. If you are one who has lived your life under that mindset, under that demand? If you do this, if you go this far, then you're lovable. Then you're acceptable. Then I will love you more. You See, this is why even the, the Christians who have walked this faith journey for a long time can possibly have this orphan spirit because the loving heart of father god affirms over and over again is this irrational love you're the smartest kid you're my favorite one i love you there's no amount of mistakes that you will make that drives me further away from you and god says over and over again try me go ahead mess up again do it again rebel against me again and this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful. God will restore us without any limits. The first is what orphan spirit lives in religious people. Number two, orphan spirit pushes a person person into isolation. Say it with me. Orphan spirit pushes a person into isolation. An orphan spirit drives a person into isolation. It drives away from fellowship, away from community. Orphan spirit creates this false idea that people don't love me. They don't want me. They attack me and they will criticize me. So you can be around people. You can have friends. You can be part of a family. But if you have an orphan spirit, you're constantly questioning the authenticity of their feelings for you. You're you're constantly challenging. You're always wondering if they really love you and accept you for who you are. And you live under the criticism. You live under this kind of paranoia that you are constantly being weighed and judged. Let me clarify something here. Solitude is not isolation. Solitude is not isolation. You can live in solitude. Solitude is a choice. Solitude refreshes you. Isolation is something that depletes you. Isolation is is you. You choose to reject. You choose to look away. You choose to corner yourself. You choose to push people away. That's isolation. Some people, some, some of us who carry this orphan spirit, we, 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 we drive our own lives into place of isolation. Orphan spirit leads you to refuse to engage community. Maybe you've been hurt before. Maybe you've been rejected before. Maybe you have been suspicious of what may come if you are to be around people. If you have an orphan spirit, you're the one that says, my life is uninter- uninteresting. My life is undesirable. My life is insignificant. My life is... Story. My story does not matter. And one of the first things that we affirm in our foundations class is that everyone has a story. What did we learn? Everyone has a story. Your story matters. Your ma- your story matters to God, and your your story matters to the people of God. It's so important for us to understand that we have the narrative of the gospel, we have the story of the gospel, and my story, full of mess full of brokenness, full of failures, full of dissatisfaction. But When my story is interweaved together with the story of, the, of Jesus Christ, that somehow God is able to redeem it. God is able to say, I have made you just the way you are. There is no fault in you. There is no mistake in every, any course of, the, of your life. God says, I have found you. I have sought out for you. I have rescued you. I have restored you back onto my story. But unfortunately, so many of us, because we lack the revelation of who Jesus is, we don't believe that for ourselves. We continue to beat ourselves saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not pure enough. You have bought in the lie of Satan. Do you remember doubting Thomas? Man, if I mean, come on, guys. One of the 12 disciples, right? I mean, minus Judas, whatever he's known for. If you're a disciple, you don't want to be known as the guy who doubted. You you don't want to be the guy that's known as a man, he's kind of like he he couldn't believe right away. One of the reasons why doubting Thomas became doubting Thomas is because he was not simply because he was not there at the time when Jesus appeared to the disciples. I don't know. Maybe he was busy. Maybe he had like prior engagements. I don't know. But simple fact that he was not yet with the community of Jesus' disciples that ha- led him to unbelief. Friends, I want you to know that doubts are magnified. They're amplified in isolation. Do you, guys, do you guys understand this? Do you know that when you are alone, the voice of Satan is the loudest? Even you may be in a good relationship with God, it's in your isolation it's in your aloneness that Satan's lies become the greatest in our lives. I personally do not, do not believe that you can be a healthy Christian without the community of other believers. God has not called you or me to be lone rangers. It just doesn't work that way. You, we're not some superheroes that have all the capabilities, all the strength and powers to trek through the challenges of life. You're, you're not Superman. You're not Iron Man. You're not Captain America. Okay? You're not Batman. All right? You know what's crazy? Even Iron Man, even, like, Captain America, you know what they did? Even they formed a group. You know what, guys? I'm tired of doing this by myself. Let's be the Avengers. Let's create this community group, guys. Are you, are you getting this? <laughs> Okay, you want me to talk about D.C. heroes, are you guys D.C. fans? What are they called? Justice league. Justice league, right? See, they're part of the league. Friends, guess what? You need to be a part of a team. Quit living your life in isolation. Proverbs 18.1 says, Man who isolates himself seeks his own desires. He rages against all wise judgment. You know what he's saying? King Solomon is saying when you live in isolation, you get f- so filled up with frustration and anger, and it drives you even crazier. As Christians, we are believed. We are called into the life of togetherness. Jesus said, well, "Jesus said, when two or more are gathered, he, he was very specific. Don't come to me by yourself. When two or more are gathered I will be in your midst. When Jesus sent out the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, what did he do? He had a buddy system. Hey go man, not by yourself, at least the two of you together. Paul, the great apostle Paul, even had a partnering running partner. He had Barnabas. Ecclesiastes chapter four, "The court of two is better than one, but the court of three is not easily broken. Friends. Orphan spirit leads you to a place of isolation. Are you someone perhaps in that place? Are you the one that is saying, I don't really need people. I'm strong enough. Maybe you're being too broken. Maybe you say, I'm too shy. I'm telling you, let the revelation of Jesus Christ leads you to get plugged into a healthy community third and last point here orphan spirit is jealous say with me orphan spirit is jealous this is perhaps the hardest for us to admit because to be honest with you we would be more okay to admit that we are mean we would have an easier time admitting that yeah i'm not that nice we would have an easier time admitting, you know what, I'm not that loving. I'm a jerk. We have an easier time admitting, you know what, I'm very greedy. I'm selfish. But it's not so hard for us to admit that, man, I am a jealous person. Because it's, it's weird, like, to, to admit jealous, like, at least in my mind, guys, many of you guys are judging me, right? Right. I, at least in my mind, I think that I think because it involves, like, I'm, I'm, I'm comparing, now I'm being petty. So to admit that I'm jealous, it, it really is like, it, 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 oh, it hurts me, it, oh, it irks me. So maybe some of us have a harder time, if you're like me, harder time admitting that we are people who are jealous. So let me describe the symptoms for you that are not able to easily admit that you are a jealous person. Others' promotions do not sit well with you. You ponder it over and over again, and you often lose sleep thinking what others are getting and having. When people purchase homes, you cannot sleep because you don't have a home. As a person it rolls up in a nice car that don't require a lot of gas... You think, why? Why am I still driving my car? Why can't I plug in anything that is out of my car? And you get frustrated and you wonder. And rather than celebrating what others are experiencing, you are being tormented by your own thoughts and your heart gets tighter and tighter. And most of us will not know that we have an orphan spirit until somebody we know who deserves less receives more before us. What's that that saying? They say, um, don't let your food get cold while looking at other people's plates. I think we do that a lot. I think we often compare a lot As human beings, we're constantly looking over what others have. We 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 think about this quite often. We think about people who are in relationships. It's like, what? That guy? That guy? Really? That guy? That guy has a girlfriend? That guy's married? To her? What? And rather than celebrating, we like we 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 get that's jealousy, guys. And for, the, for those of us that are married, we think, like, what? We've been trying for so many years. How come we don't have a child? And we think, well, but that family, that family don't even know what to do with the two kids that they already have. They're getting another kid. So we, we think about these things, and we get, we get trapped in such mindset. We think about, like, um, our, our finances. You, you studied finance in college, you, you you sat through workshops. You, you subscribe to Dave Ramsey's financial health and wealth, whatever he does. You listen to podcasts, but yet you don't see breakthroughs. Yet you see someone who is reckless, someone who is not as astute in finance, managing finances. Seemingly, that person gets all the luck. Whatever he touches in his investments, how come he always discovers the the, the booming the Twitter, Tesla, before they hit big, and you're stuck with a dying company at and you invested the wrong time. And your heart gets filled with envy. Your heart gets filled with like, no, I should be getting that. I should be seeing that breakthrough in my life. I should experience that intimacy in my marriage. I should be the one getting that promotion. I struggle with this as well, guys. I often also look over my shoulders. It's like, that guy is a pastor of that church? That guy got hired to be the lead pastor? That guy's sermon got, I don't know, the last time I said, that you know, you know? I mean, that's part of the reasons why I quit social media. I'm just admitting to you guys. Because as a person, as even as a pastor, I can't get out of it. I'm I'm constantly comparing myself. My heart gets so easily filled with jealousy. Saul and David, you guys know King David. David had fought in one battle. He killed one person. Saul, King Saul, appointed and beloved by the people of Israel, Bible describes him as tall. I don't know why I looked at you. Tall, handsome. I'm giving it to you, Stan. Tall, handsome, of good family and reputation. He had it all. But you know what broke Saul's spirit? He was out in the streets to hear one stanza of the song that people were singing. Saul killed hundreds, thousands, but David, ten thousands. Hear the lyrics of one song and Saul's heart and spirit was completely crushed. His heart got filled with so much jealousy and envy and it drove him mad. That drove him literally crazy and he began to plot to kill David. Jealousy does that, guys. Remember Cain and Abel, the first recorded murder in humanity? Cain killed Abel, his own brother. Why? Because his heart was filled with jealousy. Because his offering seemingly was not beloved and accepted by God the same way. Jealousy drove him to murder his own brother. Jealousy caused the Pharisees to crucify Jesus in due time. I want to tell you something. Someone else's promotion will expose your silent frustration with God. See what happens in the life of people around you. And see how you react. That will reveal your frustration and how you really feel about God on what he's doing or what he's not doing for you and in your life. It's crazy. As long as they are broke, we're fine. As as long as they're like around how we are doing, we feel good. As long as they're um, um, not as successful, we're okay. We say, I'm praying for you. I'm with you. But the moment that they get ahead, That the moment they receive something that we have been waiting for, then that's where we get tested. And we start saying things like, that's not fair. Say, God, what about me? When is my time? When is my turn? And we have to be careful when we say fairness to God because God teaches us, He says it's never about fairness. You want favor. We want favor from God, not fairness. You and I, we are people who thrive on receiving something that is undeserved, unmerited. So what you and I should be praying for is not fairness, it's favor. Are you waiting right now today? Are you waiting for a breakthrough? Have there been no openings for job opportunities? Are you like, stuck in the middle of nowhere financially are you in the are you in a rut relationally are you frustrated are you unhappy are you still waiting to meet someone that will spend the rest of their, your life with would you change the way you pray demand not fairness from God instead pray God I need favor God, give me favor. Because that operates not out of heart of envy or jealousy. That's the heart that operates out of faith and conviction. Orphan spirit. Orphan spirit lives in religious people. Orphan spirit pushes a person into isolation. And lastly, orphan spirit is jealous. If you've experienced any of these three things, you may be showing the symptoms of being a spiritual orphan. And if you have experienced any of these things, I want to just let you know that no amount of your own effort can change how you feel. Maybe you've given up a while ago and you keep failing over and over again. Be reminded today that there's only one As Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not tolerate you living as such. To that, God says, I am the father to the fatherless. I am the righteous, compassionate judge for the widows. I come to make my dwelling among you. I've come to have a home for all those that feel alone, rejected, those lacking hope, motivation to live I am here for you. And perhaps maybe you're one of the few that literally have lived a good portion of your life without the physical presence of a mom, of a dad. And you have carried this spirit, the orphan spirit, wondering ever who is on my side, who protects me who guards me, who keeps me safe, who comforts me, who irrationally cheers for you, me, who affirms me, I want to let you know that God is here for you. Amen? God is for you. He's for me. He's for the spiritual orphans just like you and me. He says, stop striving. Stop earning. Rest in the work that I've done on your behalf.